One of the things that stops small business owners from creating marketing content consistently is this feeling of being uninspired, of having no idea what to say in the first place. If you can relate to this, you are in good company. So many of us struggle with knowing what our marketing content should actually be about. But I am here to help. I have come up with 100 prompts that you can use to guide your marketing from your social media posts to your emails to your longer form content. I guarantee that these prompts will get you inspired and that you'll have more ideas than you even know what to do with. You can download this list of 100 marketing prompts for free at makinggoodpodcast.com slash 100 prompts. That's makinggoodpodcast.com slash 100-P-R-O-M-P-T-S. Welcome back to Making Good, the podcast for small businesses who want to make a big impact. I'm your host, Lauren Tilden, and this is episode 141. We're back with this month's edition of Making Good Book Club, and today we're talking about digital body language, how to build trust and connection no matter the distance by Erica Dewan. If you haven't listened to an episode of Making Good Book Club yet, here's the deal. Making Good has a book club. Once per month, my brilliant book club co-host Sherelle Griffith and I discuss a book we think can help move the needle in your small business, and we'll share our takeaways specifically for small businesses. So today's episode is all about digital body language. Digital body language was a really fascinating book to me and truly has me rethinking a lot of the ways that I communicate online. You'll hear me processing a lot of this out loud in the episode. As you'll hear, this book is especially relevant to anyone who works with other people in their business, whether that's your employees or your team, contractors, collaborators, etc. In this book club episode, we talk about what digital body language is and why it's worth thinking through, how power and trust relate to how we communicate, the four laws of digital body language, the case for emojis and exclamation marks, communication differences by gender, generation, and culture, and much, much more. Stay tuned through the end of the episode so you don't miss the book that we announced as our pick for the next month's edition of Making Good Book Club. Just a quick reminder that if you want the updates on Book Club, you can sign up to get notified at makinggoodpodcast.com slash book club. Okay, so let's get into this month's book club episode about digital body language by Erica Dewan. Well, hello, Sherelle. Welcome back to Making Good Book Club. Hello. Thank you for having me back. Glad to have you back. And this will be an interesting conversation this week because um, as we were just discussing before I put the record button on, we were both kind of surprised by this book in that it seems to be, well, it was more targeted toward people with mm, more conventional like workplace jobs versus being business owners. I think there are definitely good ways we can apply it to small businesses. I actually did learn a lot from this book, but it was a bit of a different one. So it'll be interesting to talk about. We are talking about digital body language. And Sherelle, do you want to just Maybe if you had 30 seconds to describe (laughs) what this book is about for anyone who didn't read it, what would you say? So it's about how to communicate in a world where we're doing it all online. So whereas many of us learn how to communicate with people in like an in-person way, this is much about how do you do it digitally? And it's a combination of what to do from a written perspective, but also using things like Zoom and Teams and things like that. Yeah. And what I sort of the I guess thesis of the book in my eyes is that we kind of underestimate the amount of communication that we do that is outside of just the words that we're saying. So in person, we have body language, we have like smiling, we have the tone that we use and all of these things don't translate when you're writing an email or (laughs) um, some of them translate if you've got a video call, but for the most part, a lot of the ways that we communicate just aren't available to us in kind of the modern day style of communication, which is really tech reliant. She says, we are all immigrants in this new world of like communicating on technology because like, it's kind of a brand new world. None of us totally know how to do it. And as a result, there's a lot of miscommunication. There's a lot of like trying to figure out what people actually mean 
are they mad? Like, what is the actual tone of this email or message? So I totally related to that. There's a big conversation in the book about like the level of anxiety that can come with not understanding where someone's coming from. Like you can read their words, but you don't know, are they, you know, like, are you in trouble? Are you, are they happy with your work? Like it can be really, really difficult to understand where you're at with someone when you're only communicating like with technology. Yeah. And I think what I really liked was her real emphasis on the fact this is something new and actually, whereas from very young, I suppose as children, we're always, we're learning how to read things. And obviously we learn that based on some of the societal contexts that we're in, but this actual way of digital communications, for many of us, this might not be the communication like world we were born in. Um, and also even that impacts therefore what we know, how we think we're meant to do things, but also we may very well have rules in our head, which we think mean one thing that mean completely different things to other people. And so I found that really refreshing just to be like, actually, all of us are sort of making this up as we go along. But she did have some very like practical advice and that through the book of like, actually like her, I suppose her way of approaching things. But yeah, I think if anyone's also thinking, I don't think I do this very well, this isn't about being hard on yourself because the reality is basically no one does it very well. Yeah, totally. So one thing I really liked that she said, and this is, I'm quoting her, but she says, what does good digital body language look like in action? It means never assuming that our own digital habits, for example, answering every email we get within 30 seconds or never listening to our voicemails are shared by everybody else. It means taking a few extra seconds to ask ourselves whether our sentences, words, or even punctuation might be misinterpreted. It means being hyper-conscious of the signals and cues we send out, constantly checking in with ourselves and learning along the way. I guess we'll probably get to this later on, but for me, a big takeaway from this book is just reminding yourself to assume the best intent from other people. It doesn't benefit anyone to be like, you know, to assume that if you get a calendar invite that doesn't have a lot of context with it, it doesn't benefit you or anyone else to spend the next 24 hours until that event, like stressed out that you're going to be fired or that, you know, there's more to it than there necessarily is. So trying not to read into things too much and put your own label on things or your own meaning to things that isn't there, I think is really challenging, but it's, it's helpful. (laughs) One thing I, I guess, as a first sort of category of things to talk about, one thing that I found super, super thought provoking was the idea of power Mm -hmm. and how power comes into the way that we communicate in this new like digital world. For example, if your boss or your client, let's say in the case of a small business owner or a customer emails you with a request they have more power than you. So you're most likely going to reply quickly and with like a lot of information or like whatever you think they need, you're going to go above and beyond and like put a lot of effort into that response. Whereas if someone with less power than you, so someone who works for you or, you know, someone else who wants something from you, who is not a client, if they were to have a similar request of you, you would most likely take longer to respond and not put as much effort into your response. And that I have seen so many times, but I never really thought about it in that way. So that was just like extremely thought provoking for me. I think for me, what was really interesting when she spoke about power was how we also, the way we even communicate is different depending on the power and how that will have an impact on what we might say and what we might not say, because like in terms of some of the like the style of written communication people might use because depending on the power. And I really liked when she spoke about also how the difference is how culture and power play in because actually there are some cultures where like now there definitely is becoming less of a hierarchy and the way we might communicate with our boss is not the way someone might have 20, 30 years ago have communicated to their boss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she also introduces this thing called the trust and power matrix, which is essentially a four quadrant matrix matrix where on the X axis, um, on the left hand side, it's people who you don't have a lot of trust built up with. 
And the right-hand side, it's people you do have a lot of trust built up with. And then on the y-axis, the vertical axis, on the top level is people that you that have more power. And on the bottom level is people that have less power. So there's a lot of examples given, but essentially this interaction between the level of trust that you have established with someone and the power dynamics at play, all four of these different like boxes in this matrix. So for example, someone you don't have a lot of trust with, but who has more power, someone you have a lot of trust with, but has more power, someone who you don't have a lot of trust with, but has less power than you. And someone you do have a lot of trust with that has less power than you, depending on what of these boxes you fall into the way that you communicate, the way that you perceive different communications even though we don't do this consciously, it's different. And it's, I've like, I was able to see and like think of a lot of examples related to each of these boxes. So I thought that was really, really interesting. I guess my thinking after this was like, I want to kind of break through that a little bit. Like, I don't want to treat people differently based on the amount of power that they have. Um, you know, like I, for example, like I do notice that if someone on my team asks for something from me, I don't necessarily respond right away. But if like a customer or client does, like I am all about it right away. And not to say that you shouldn't prioritize the customer messages, but I think I totally unintentionally have kind of like under prioritized a lot of like of the messaging with my team. So I know that they're, I'm off in the bottleneck, like they're waiting for me. And I've always thought about that as like, Oh, like they understand I have a lot going on, but actually this book really made me think about how that could be taken as like disrespectful. Um, you know, so that's something that I really have been thinking a lot about after reading this book. I do think it's worth noting this moment in time, like this book is so, I personally was reading it and to me, because I don't have a team, there was some stuff that didn't really resonate with me, but I really can understand like from Lauren's perspective, this idea of if you actually are managing a team, so much of this is going to help you to probably be a better communicator with that team because more and more we are having teams where whether you're remote and so you like never see your team or whether it's just, you know, there are obviously communications go between the two, um, between you and that other person. Um, is some of it's digital. The fact is, like trying to build these teams nowadays with a pure digital communication and all the other variations that might be of those people, like it's hard work. <laughs> and so the book did give some really good, uh, like just frameworks I think to work in if you are actually are a business owner that has to run a team and you're a bit like, oh, like it's not the most natural thing to you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a big thing that I was just thinking about as I was reading the book is like the difference between what your intent is and how it comes off. Mm -hmm. So my intent is always like, I'll, I want to respond thoughtfully when I have a chance. And so therefore sometimes my responses take a really long time, especially for my team. But one tip that I took away was like, just acknowledge things and say, Hey, like, I don't have time right this minute to get back to you, but I got it looks great. And I'm going to have more on this soon for you. And just kind of like responding in the short term with an acknowledgement and like some gratitude, I think goes a long way. And that's something that I sort of just assume is there, but I don't always communicate. So that was one big takeaway for me. Yeah, I really liked that tip. I think it's also really Mm -hmm. useful because it allows the other person, especially people who live in a world where they feel like they are responding to your, like their workload is based on your emails. Actually telling Mm -hmm. someone, uh, like I'm not going to get back to you till this evening means no one's thinking that's going to come through the rest of the day. And so they're just like, fine, they leave that. Like actually what isn't mentioned here, but I imagine it's quite an interesting one. Is like, you know, the people that are like, I'm trying to get to zero inbox. And actually they're just waiting for people to get back to them. And then that's just like frustrating. It's like knowing, Mm -hmm. helping people to be able to manage their time by actually getting back to people. And like Lauren, you're saying you want to write a thoughtful answer. So actually that's better than you grabbing five minutes in the middle of the day to write something back that then doesn't answer all their questions or doesn't provide what they need. So you are doing the right thing. It's like, but she was saying, actually, unfortunately, timings and like silence. So she talked about timing, anxiety and silence. 
And we've all built up these sort of new rules about how fast someone should get back to us. And if it takes longer than that, most of us end up thinking the worst. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's no like universally accepted um, standards about what is a reasonable amount of time to respond to things. So some people, if you take more than a day, like they'll be chasing you for things. And for me, I do not respond within a day, especially on email. (laughs) Like I just don't. And I guess the analogy that she made that I found really interesting was like, if you're in a face-to-face conversation with someone, there is a reasonable amount of time (laughs) that goes by (laughs) between someone finishing speaking and the next person stops, you know, starting. Like there's a kind of cadence and a pace that as people who speak in person, we are used to. But with when you take our communications to text message or to Slack or to email or even video calls, like, yeah, we're kind of all in this like a wild, wild west of of technology. And there's no standards about like how much time things take. And so like Shirelle, you were just saying, we tend to make things mean things. If you don't get an email back right away, you're like, did I not get the job? Did I make them mad? Like there's so much emotional load that goes with that. Um, So I think, yeah, it's a really kind thing that you can do to anyone is just to acknowledge their email right away. Even if you don't have your like actual response ready yet. I was going to say, I'm really glad you mentioned about Slack and text and and like the other ways we communicate, because that also was something that uh, is is touched on in the book. Like she actually talks about the different ways we communicate and actually are we using necessarily the right channel? And this really reminded me of like some of my roles in the past where we started to add different ways of communicating. Like life's quite simple if we just say we've just got email. And, you know, you might mm-hmm. have, you know, I remember when I had my desk phone <laughs> and like, I'd be like, I have my desk phone and I have an email. But that's what she was saying. Whereas now it's like, actually, you have, you might have Slack and people are pinging you all day long and they might have your phone number. So they're actually sending you like a text or a WhatsApp or whatever. And actually the, there are different some people have different rules about that. So there are people who are literally like the worst thing you could do is possibly like to pick up the phone and ring them unannounced. Whereas other people see that as a very like, I know this is gonna be really quick. Why am I going to give you an extra email into your inbox? And like, if you're someone that doesn't like that. And actually that really resonated for me as someone who with my clients, like my inbox is a mess. I'll admit it. I'm probably traumatized from my working days. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Mm -hmm. I have all of my one-on-one clients on Voxer. So that they have a way to, they can message me, they can send me videos, they can drop me a text or a voice, whatever they want to do. And it's, they are the only people that are in that space. And I can respond usually super quickly. And I say, if you send me an email, just drop me a message on Voxer so that I can go and find it basically. And that is like my, that works for me. And I was like, actually, yeah, if I went back to an environment where people email me all day, every day, it probably would drive me insane. But I can imagine for other people, that level of like interruption would just be like, no. And so I think what mm-hmm. it's really interesting that now we've added in more layers that some of them are going to work for some people and others aren't going to work for other people. And you might have someone who you have to work with quite a lot. And the way that the two of you like to use different types of channels are really crazy. And that's where in the book, she really puts down like, it is the job of the actual like business to sort of set the rules, particularly if you start adding in like Slack and text and this and that and being like, what are the protocols? Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of the book was making the point of like going out of your way to communicate what your standards are or like what your response time is or what certain things mean is really an effective thing you can do with anyone who you communicate with so that they can kind of know how to interpret the way that you behave online. Um, one section I really liked was, it's just a little blurb that said, am I the problem? How to avoid creating digital anxiety? <laughs> and so she had some questions for like, you know, when you are communicating something, you can ask yourself these questions to make sure that people on the other end of it don't misinterpret it or it's not like ambiguous. So the questions she said were, is my message clear? Is there another way that the recipient might interpret my message? If my message is confusing, is there another medium or style I could use to convey it more clearly? And if I have more power, am I unintentionally terse, vague, or rushed? And so I mean, obviously, like I'm not really planning to have like a checklist at the end of every email I send, (laughs) but just kind of having these having 
the recipient in mind and kind of asking yourself, how might they interpret this before you hit send on something or, you know, send that one word text message just to avoid like the emotional gymnastics that they might be doing on their end. Mm -hmm. So I think just kind of being thoughtful about how things could be received and trying to create as much clarity as you can was a good takeaway. And I think another good takeaway was just also like actually spend the time to proofread and like check that it does make sense. Like one of the things you really spoke about was how, because it's a fast form now, so many of us will just like write something back, just send it. And we don't give it the care and the attention necessarily it deserves, but actually that extra time shows respect and to the other person. Um, And that actually is really important, particularly if you do not have opportunities to be building a relationship in person. And I think this is the thing that I found quite interesting was, you know, I definitely know that there are people that, you know, work in companies that are completely remote. You might have someone that you're like building a team and in order to get the best talent, it's not someone that you've met. If you're trying to build uh, a relationship and you've not actually had that, those sort of things go the extra mile because you're having to do it all from a digital perspective rather than having had what might feel like a bit more of a natural way of have done it in person. And then you sort of get away with a bit more when you do it digitally because you've known each other. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that goes back into like the trust element. Yeah. Is it worth going through what her four laws actually were for digital body language? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. So she has like four laws for digital body language. And these are sort of the, they form like the middle section of the book. And that's what she goes into real detail. So it's worth just everyone understanding what we've got. We have got value visibly, communicate carefully, collaborate confident, confidently, trust totally. She clearly loves alliteration and that made it a total tongue yeah. twister. <laughs> <laughs> Valuing visibly means being more sensitive to other people's time and needs, reading digital communications with care and attention, and respecting other people without being in a rush about it. So this is really about like what I just spoke about, about this idea of like respecting the other people, and really showing and having to like go, I suppose, in a way what might feel a bit above and beyond to be able to show that like you really do value like the communication, you do really value what they might have sent across to you. And like when we spoke about this idea of taking the time and effort, like when we're sending stuff back to do that in a way that really makes sense, it shows again, like, I really respect you. That's why I've spent the time to write this email in a way that's going to really like answer all your questions or give you what you need. And so rather than thinking I have all the power and therefore disrespecting the person, it's about actually in a way putting you both on the same plane and showing everyone the level of respect they deserve from email or digital communications. Totally. I love that one. That's got me thinking personally. The second element or the second law of digital body language is communicate carefully. And sort of the subtitle for this is think before you type. She says, we communicate carefully by sending messages that say what we mean and state what we need from whom and when, thereby eliminating frustrating ambiguity. This is really all about being clear. Mm-hmm. She says, getting to the point while considering context, medium, and audience. This is really all about the fact that it can be very easy to sort of get lazy almost in our communications when all you're doing is texting or getting something out on Slack or writing a quick email response. Like it's very, I don't know, it almost takes discipline to to be thoughtful in your responses and in your messaging all of the time, but it really matters. And actually it's more efficient. Like it saves time to be clear and to be organized than to send something that isn't clear and having people have to like respond for clarification or they misunderstood and did something that you didn't mean entirely. So being really clear, I think is to me, the big takeaway of this communicate carefully section. Um, she had a checklist that says, try this, think before you type checklist. Mm -hmm. So she said, who needs to be included on this message? What do I want the receiver to do after they read this message? What context or information do they need? What is the appropriate tone? What is the best time to send this message? What is the best channel to convey this message? And I think one... Oh, sorry. The last thing, which I didn't say is how comfortable would I be if this message was screenshotted, forwarded, or otherwise shared? I love that one. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes. How many of us have gotten like I have someone in my life in particular who will screenshot text messages from other people all the time and send them to me. And I'm like, okay, I got to be careful what I say to this person. <laughs> Conversations are not private in the way that it might be like one-on-one unrecorded in real life. Yeah. And so just acknowledging that I think is really important. It's very easy for something for an email to be forwarded or accidentally someone replies all. So just being like very careful about what you put in written format um, is important. Um, I think another thing, the big takeaway I had here was about tone and we'll probably talk about it a little more, but a couple of things that she talks quite a bit about when it comes to tone are exclamation points and um, emojis. And like both of these topics got quite a bit of airtime in this book, which I was pretty surprised by, but I, I think she makes a really good point about how they can just be used as sort of stand-ins for, you know, when you're writing an email, the person can't see your face. They can't see like the tone and emotion that you bring to things. So emojis actually and exclamation points are helpful ways to like be stand-ins for this. Um, I love writing with emojis. So this was like, I kind of already do this, but I guess I liked to see the, I don't know, like the, just like, I do it because I like to, not because I've thought that hard about it, but yeah, I think it actually does serve an important place in communication where we don't have like, you know, you can't show the expressions on your face. So instead putting an emoji that kind of represents it is a way to help the other person have a little bit more clarity of like where you're coming from. And so I, it's really interesting that that comes into like the communicate, care, communicate carefully section, um, because it is a way of communicating and to helping the other person on the other end of the communication know what you mean. So, yeah, I was just kind of surprised that they got so much airtime in the book, but I do think they are important. So well, I like because that it, a lot. It came up in this part and then the, the like last, I don't know if it's part of the book, talks a lot about like some of the communication difference of styles based on like gender generation and there was one mm-hmm. other word and I think actually that I found quite interesting when emojis came back into that section of the conversation because actually yeah. the thing is they're shorthand and they mean something probably to like you and your circle probably all have a very similar meaning but they can to other people have a totally different meaning and that's where particularly when we start to think of like um, being like an international business that actually mm-hmm. then these things we think I mean one thing can mean something else and there was like some interesting examples of stuff in the book but also in from a generational point perspective as well like some people will see that like someone who in, who could be like an older person could put that as like the younger generation being lazy like why can't you just write the whole sentence <laughs> rather than having to stick in an emoji mm-hmm. and I think that yeah is, and I mean My take on emojis is like, use them in addition to your words, you know, like they're extra, not like in replace, like don't make someone try to decode your message because you're replacing words with emojis would be my (laughs) stance on that. But yes, I I take your point. (laughs) Yeah. And um, it's also funny because we could push this to be like, well, also if we're allowed to have them in one-on-one, like what is the rule you know, in terms of like, if you're doing email marketing, like what is your stance on emojis in that world? Do you use them, Lauren? Use them all the time. Well, I definitely am on a slower journey. I would say because I think it's because I type them. So I think you can tell in my world if I'm doing something on my phone versus if I'm doing it on the computer. So because I type Mm -hmm. for my email marketing, they definitely have a lot less emojis than if I was sending you an email. But you know you can type emojis. I know, but it's just not going to happen. Like, it's just my brain. Again, (laughs) it's just a classic example. Like, I know to have to do it, but my brain just was on my phone. It's like, it's like the natural way I communicate. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. If you have a Mac, just while you're listening, if you use a Mac and you're typing, um, control command space bar. It pulls up your emoji keyboard. So that's how I like if I'm writing an email or like Slack messages from my computer, I always use emojis and that's how I do it. 
I used to just try to copy and paste them and that was so annoying. So you actually can type them in if that's helpful for anyone. And there is a way to do it on Windows too. I just don't know it. So just Google like the keyboard shortcut for that. Cool. So that was emojis. Uh, <laughs> yes, that was um, communicate carefully. Do you want to talk about collaborate confidently? Collab- yeah, collaborate confidently. So this is about it's putting aside our fears and anxieties um, and actually being able in a digital age to do teamwork. And so this brought up some of like ways about talking about like how to stay in the loop with other people. You know, I mean, one of the things that really made me laugh was this whole thing about like BCC and CC, all the joys that gave me, I think like pure stress flash flashbacks mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and like how to actually uh, do like, video meetings in a in a good way so that everyone can contribute how to make sure that people feel a part of a team um, and stuff to do with like not being a chronic counselor um having patience with responses so yeah it was a it was a mixture of like actually how to i suppose facilitate teamwork so in terms of like what to do with actual meetings and stuff like that but also then how just like the best practices in terms of what you should be doing to also be a good team player yeah um this actually was quite a short chapter it's not compared to like the other ones it wasn't as long it was quite a quick one my just sort of personal takeaways from this chapter were about i thought the talk about the chronic cancellations was really a good one yeah and not that i do this or very often or have people in my life who do it but i have been on the other end of like you know, a standing meeting that gets canceled 50% of the time because Mm -hmm. whoever's on the other end of it just ran up, runs out of time. And just like knowing how, like, it doesn't feel good to, to have someone kind of disrespect your time like that. So just being really conscious about, you know, other people's time and expectations and their schedule if you are the person with more power, like just acknowledging that and um, I don't know, going out of your way to respect and provide a platform and and an open dialogue for people, I think is really important. And I think part of that bit as well was also about real deadlines. And I really resonated with this. Like there is nothing worse than like, I think there's an example in the book being like someone made a request. They said they needed it by tonight. So then she stayed up. She did the work. She sent it across. And the response was like, we can talk about this on Monday. <laughs> and it was like, mm-hmm. you told me there's a deadline. I pushed myself and I've overworked now. And actually, it wasn't a real deadline. I used to work in jobs where the, it was never a real deadline. It literally used to do my head in so much. So like that, like actually don't force people to feel there's a pressure to deliver on time if that is not a real deadline. Hmm. I really, really yeah. love that one. I think you can probably feel <laughs> <laughs> It's so funny. Like, when you know, I think both of us having had like corporate experience, like probably so much of what we read in this book, like you're like, oh, yes. yes, yeah, yes, literally, yes. literally like flashbacks of like, oh, I'm so glad that is. I think even seeing because um, there's like examples in the book. It's clearly Outlook. <laughs> and it's like even just like the way it's that shape just makes me like stress. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, totally. But I think like if you have intentions of building a team or if you already have some kind of team or even if it's not like your employees, but you work with service providers or contractors, I think there's just a lot in this book that can help you be more conscious about like the sort of like communication culture that you're creating. And just I think knowing that everything you communicate is going to be received in some way and that people are going to read into it. And the more clarity you can create for people is just like a kind and responsible thing to do. So I really appreciated that. The fourth law of digital body language is called trust totally. And this is kind of the phase where if you've implemented in your culture and your business and in your communications, the first three laws. So valuing other people, communicating carefully and collaborating. Once you've kind of established those, then you can move on to this fourth law of trusting totally. And to me, this is about when you've created some of these sort of like standards for communications and a culture of communicating really responsibly you will be able to trust people's intentions and that they're communicating 
So for example, like if you were to get a calendar invite that said meeting on, we need to meet urgently tomorrow morning. If you are working in a workplace of trust and kind of respect because you put these other laws into place, you are not going to immediately assume the worst and think that that is like coded language for you're getting fired or something has blown up. Like you would be able to trust that, oh, that person must have been moving too quickly to give me more detail, but like we'll talk tomorrow and it's not something I need to worry about right now. So trust is really creating an environment where people are not reading into things in ways that are unhelpful. And trust is really something that is built by the leader. Mm -hmm. So the leader of the organization or the leader of the team, it's their job to create a trusting environment um, where people don't assume the worst and they kind of like assume best intent from everyone. And a lot of this is about modeling the behavior that you want other people to be using. So responding promptly and, you know, expressing your appreciation for your team, just kind of being a good communicator all around, which is actually a lot easier said than done. Yeah. And she has at the end of that chapter, like a natural like assessment for you to go through. So it goes through you having a bit of a checklist around what things to ask about value visibly, communicate carefully, collaborate completely in total trust. So you can go through and be like, actually, have I tried to implement all the things that the book has been saying um, and get to that point? Because as you said, it's like the first three have to all happen. And then it's like within you get the touch totally. And like, that's like, she's got like a little diagram. So if you get the book, you've mm-hmm. got to do that. <laughs> and one thing I didn't really say in this section was, and she's mentioned it a couple parts throughout the book so far, but um, just the idea of engaging in digital water cooler moments. Oh yeah. And these are kind of like the casual non-work related conversations, whether it's like a Slack channel that's just for fun or, you know, spending five minutes in the beginning of a meeting to just greet each other and kind of like chat about things that don't matter. This stuff is really easy just to skip when you are not in a physical working environment, because I don't know, there's less of like a routine of communicating that way, but that actually these sort of like meaningless, superficial, like non-work related conversations actually are really an important part of building trust because it's like building a bond with someone and like kind of just like little by little having it starting to build up a connection with someone that when you've established that you have more trust with them and therefore like you each reciprocally reciprocally will not assume the worst from each other when you're trying to work together in a work context. So I thought that was really interesting and important is looking for those non-work related moments to just connect. Yeah, I think it is really important. I actually did work for a company that had a Slack channel that had, like, we did have, like, the frivolous channel. And I remember thinking it was totally pointless. But when I read this Wait, book... what I was, was it called? I called it a frivolous channel. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I just was like, this is totally pointless. But when I read this book, I thought the difference was that I was in the office at that moment in time and I knew the people I was working with. But I could mm-hmm. see that if I hadn't met the people or I hardly ever got to see them, that it is valuable. Like the reality is we want to connect with people as humans. We want to connect as people. And so anything that allows us to be able to do that actually really is important because team, I mean, you know, it's why we used to go on crazy team bonding exercises, isn't it? Like you have to do something to help people bond realistically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I used to work for a business that was actually based in the UK, and there are like 150 employees around the world. Um, I don't know, maybe like 50 or 60 of them were in the UK, but the rest like across many continents. And they would actually fly us all to London once a year to like spend three days together. Not doing like there were some work presentations there, but it was really mostly not about work, just so that we knew each other and like had Mm -hmm. some kind of bond so that like the rest of the year when we were working together, there was some basis for that aside from just work. And so, and I do think that was really effective, even though it probably was extremely expensive for them to do every year. Like (laughs) I think think it works. Yeah. I do think it makes a difference because I think when we think about if you also, if you've met someone, it can help you to understand the way they communicate as well. Sometimes like actually it's, if you've met someone and you realize they've got a certain type of humor, for example, that's mm-hmm. good. then it'll make much more sense when they, when you get a message. Whereas if you don't, if you've never heard them speak and you've never actually seen them interact, then it's probably easier to miss 
understand their digital communication. Totally. So the last section of this book, part three, is called Digital Body Language Across Difference. And there's three kind of main sections of this. One is about gender, one is about generation, and one is about culture. And so these are really all instances where the way we communicate is interpreted differently or people communicate differently based on their identity. So let's kind of go into each of these a little bit. Um, first up, gender. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. This one, um, this is annoying. <laughs> <laughs> Overall, I mean, I, I, I agreed with her points, but I think, unfortunately, it's kind of an annoying thing where we are interpreted and received differently based on our perceived gender a lot of the times in our communication. So whereas someone like a man who is very direct and to the point in his communication, if a woman were to have sent the same message, it might come off as like rude or too short. So I feel like she, in not so many words, kind of gives you a couple options. She's like, you can either play into this and like try to be received the best you can, even though it's annoying that you'll kind of have to modify or not. You can kind of decide not to and risk the risk being misunderstood occasionally. Yeah. This is an annoying section for me just because I know she's right, but it is unfair that based on your perceived gender identity, like the way that you communicate is received differently. It is so unfair, but like so true. So like when I was reading it, it, really resonated with me because I definitely was someone who used to write quite short to the point emails. I mean, I probably had a job where I used to get hundreds of emails every day and Mm -hmm. would have loads of meetings. So like my time was limited, like my inbox was always horrendous. And so I I think I'm already quite a, I class as blunt to the point person anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's just like my style. Like I'm not flowery. So I was on a podcast yesterday and someone asked me about like, might like sell it. They were talking about like using analogies. And I was like, I ain't got time for analogies. It's just not my style anyway. (laughs) It's not. (laughs) So... Then obviously that just got worse. But then I actually had feedback in like a review that basically was just sort of like, I needed to be like fluffier in my emails. And I remember Mm. really, it really annoyed me because also I didn't get a promotion that I wanted at that point, which I made very clear that that's what I was working towards. And that was one of the things that was noted that I wasn't good enough at. And I was like, if you told Mm. me this months ago, like I can add in a, how was your weekend? And blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Like I can do it. And actually it's funny reading it now thinking actually I am like that more now. Like clearly I did alter the way I wrote my emails. Um, Mm -hmm. But it was like, you didn't tell me that. And then I felt like actually I was penalized in that, in that work environment because I hadn't done that change, but you hadn't made that clear that that's what your expectations were. So I re- I really resonated with this chapter and was like, even though it's massively unfair, like that is the reality. There are expectations about how we are meant to write and we are judged differently. And we're judged differently in the same way as you would be in person. The same applies to how you're writing. And actually there was one thing, there's a bit in here that talked about like filler words that like women mm. use. And that it's what it's like, like, it's my feeling that I feel maybe in my opinion, I just, and I was like, I still use just. And in my, like, I, I think in my opinion, like so much. And I'm like, Oh, it's awful. But yeah, it's it's a hard life sometimes trying to be a woman in writing emails. <laughs> hmm Yeah, I think there's a couple other parts of this section that were really interesting. One is about acknowledging your own bias. So yes. while, you know, myself, I identify as a woman, I still probably have a bunch of biases around the way that people communicate just because of like, the culture that we live in. And so doing your best to kind of unpack that. And if I get an email from a woman that might be short and to the point, like <laughs> not doing my best to not let my own bias affect how I interpret that and say, okay, like if this were from a man, would I be interpreting this the same way? Mm-hmm. And so trying to not be part of the problem in a sense, when it comes to like how we receive messaging based on gender Another thing that I thought was interesting from this section was about passing the megaphone. Yeah. 
Yeah, so it was um someone spoke about the idea that they did it on Twitter and they were actually looking at like whose uh, messages they were like amplifying and showing it either through like retweeting and stuff like that. And I thought that was a, like, something that really uh like I really made note of that. This idea about we can also be more inclined more inclusive with whose content we are sharing so it's not just even just the actual like what you're putting out there but actually are you for example only then ever like sharing information that's come from like a certain type of person or actually are you trying to be really inclusive and share multiple different viewpoints so basically are you part of the problem or are you not like and actually that's something Mm -hmm. I found like you know I'm very aware through like I've said it about my book club like I definitely have too many white men books that I have chosen over the past and I've started to try and change it but it has taken an active thing and I think we can all do that in different ways in our in our life where actually we're not passing the megaphone we're not amplifying the full variety and diversity of voices that are out there mm-hmm. yeah and it takes a conscious effort like it's yes. not <laughs> it takes thought and um intention it doesn't happen automatically just because you might want it to be that way or like you are a woman so you assume you're going to be unbiased like it takes intention and and yeah focus so um yeah I think that's a really big takeaway um should we talk about generation yes let's talk about generation because I really like this because it wasn't just about like an age so it wasn't just like there is an age and if you're before this you're one thing and you're after that the other like actually what she was really talked about in the book was this idea of like digital natives versus digital adopters and i think that actually is quite a is is an interesting conversation for you to work out either where you sit and which one are you but also that idea that i think sometimes we can make assumptions that are based on what we are and therefore we have there's like an extra thing to think about. So I did have a boss, for example, that really struggled with typing, like really. So actually <laughs> it was like awful. So if I got something that like was all in caps, I'd just be like, she didn't turn the caps lock back off. Like I knew it wasn't shouting because oh I gosh, just had funny. this. I know. I mean, it was awful, but it was like a genuine thing that I knew because like that's something that a, a digital native would never do. But I knew that she was a digital adopter and therefore there were things that, we would just never do and that she did and so I think this idea of like if you're on a team that is well there's two things is when you're communicating in a team that involves both sets of people how do you interact but also if you are managing a team and I think actually this is it's you know we know it's really important to have diversity in teams so ideally we want to have one of both as a minimum but actually it can fall then like it's extra hard work because you're like trying to communicate across different like communication styles Yeah. And again, I think it's really all about just being thoughtful about the person or the people receiving your messages. So one really interesting example here between or like kind of difference between digital natives and digital adapters, um, digital natives tend to text to ask if they can call instead of Mm. just making a phone call directly, because digital natives view phone calls as kind of like interrupting, like it's not it's not a natural way to initiate a conversation. It's something that like kind of has to be planned. Whereas a digital adapter is more likely to just default straight to calling and they'll leave a voicemail. Whereas a digital (laughs) native, I can tell you, I mean, I must be a digital native because let's see how many voicemails unlistened to I have right now. 32. Oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, it's just like, Things in this book that I thought were kind of quirks about me actually like, you know, they're actually ways of communicating. Interestingly, like I just don't do voicemail, but a lot of people would. And so being thoughtful about who's on the other end of your communications is so important because if I'm communicating with someone who leaves a lot of important information on voicemail, I need to know that so that I can go out of my way to check that. And likewise, if they're communicating with me and they know I don't check voicemail, like maybe they would choose not to leave a lot of important Mm. information over voicemail. So just being really thoughtful about who's on the other end of your communications. And I think also we can change because this, this was a bit that really struck me because I remembered how much I just used to answer the phone. Like my, I did used to have that job where people would call me. I would just call people, Mm -hmm. people would call me. That's, you know, that was my life. And now that never happens. Like if, 
I don't answer the phone mm-hmm. in the day. When I work, I don't. There's no one. There's no one from a, a business reason that has to call me. And so I and so I was like, even that has changed. Like I actually did think, oh, I, I don't know how I would feel now if I was had that sort of life where I was meant to answer the phone. And that, I know that sounds weird. And I'm like totally. And actually, like I, there was a bit about extroverts versus introverts. And it's like, you know, I'm totally comfortable talking on the phone, but now it just isn't a natural communication thing for me to be in a world where I think this has happened let me just call but I would drop you a voice note like straight away do you know what I mean like I would I would go into whatsapp and leave a voice note so it's like actually we all have developed different ways of community now that feel the most natural to us but that doesn't mean it's natural to everyone else the voice note thing is a really interesting one because some people hate it because they 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 don't want to open something that they don't know what someone's saying so some people say in terms of like, actually, you should only be like, te- if you're on like WhatsApp or you, as a communication, it'd be like, you should only actually ever use like words and emojis, not actually send a voice note. Whereas I'm like, I find it much easier to send voice notes and I prefer listening to them. Interesting. So, okay. So that's, this is a funny one for me because I like leaving voice notes, but I don't like listening to them as much because I'm like, oh, I have to have my headphones on and like, I can't do it while my kid is sleeping, you know? So mm. Yeah, voice notes are a funny one for me. That's a really interesting one as well, because I would take it, because they do talk about, you know, reciprocating the communication style. So she does talk about that in the book and this idea that, so if you sent me a voice note first, I would argue that's given me permission to send you back one. Totally. No, totally. (laughs) And then Lauren's like, I'm going to ignore you for four days. (laughs) No. (laughs) Well, I'll try not to. But what often will happen is if I get a voice note, I'll be like, okay, I need to go back and listen to that one. Like I can, because I can't right now for X, Y, Z reason. And then I forget. So Mm. yay. Yay for me. I'm such a great communicator. (laughs) Um, So the last section in the book, and this is kind of the third difference. We talked about gender and generation. And the third is culture. And this is really most relevant well, I think it's relevant to all of us, but it's very relevant to people who work with people from or who live in different parts of the world. Yeah. So, yeah, we talked about already the kind of differences with um, emoji use and how certain emojis literally mean different things in different places. So, for example, the thumbs up in like the U.S. is like, great, got it, received, sounds good. Whereas there are places in the world where that's like a pretty rude gesture. So certainly if you're going to be, if you are working with people from a lot of different places, doing some research about like the specific emojis that you're going to be using is probably pretty important. She also introduced this idea of high context versus low context cultures. Yeah. So high context cultures are those that communicate in ways that are implicit and rely heavily on non-verbal cues. So she puts the examples of countries in the Mediterranean, Central Europe, Latin America, Africa, the Middle East, and Asia fall into this category. And then by contrast, explicit verbal communication is a mark of low context cultures. So that is what that is includes most English speaking Western cultures, such as United States and the UK. So we would mm-hmm. be low context. <laughs> and I found this right. really fascinating because um, you know, I've definitely heard examples in the past where people say like when they've gone to a certain country and they're working there and like having to like understand the different like um, the ways of working and things that we might take absolutely for granted in a different way. And I think there was definitely some example in the book about like even the way that like CC is used in other cultures and this idea of mm-hmm. like out of respect. So in, like in we would in like the UK would be more likely like CC is just like, Oh, you might need to you might need to know this information as well. Like, like we're just FYI sort of thing for you. You might need this. Whereas actually in other, was it high context cultures, it's like you'd have to include possibly like their manager if you were giving a task to someone because it's a sign of respect that you so you would have to do that rather than it's like the person would say to their boss, like, I'm doing this. And it's like actually if you miss that out, it's like sort of like a bit of a chain of command thing. If you miss it out, it's a sign of disrespect. And I was like, that is fascinating because I can just imagine how many people have got that wrong. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. A high context culture, there's more of like the social boundaries and like formalities and hierarchies to contend with and to be considerate of. Whereas in a low context culture like the U S for example, we, there's less, 
thoughtfulness that I think it has is expected. Do you think that's a fair way of saying it? Yeah, and I think also they spoke about the like in meetings how like in the UK and US we would feel probably much more comfortable to be able to like voice our differences whereas because in other cultures the like the hierarchy and the respect that each level has that might be like no one's going to do that and so actually you might think everyone's agreeing with you when they're not just because that the the societal cultural like uh practices mean that people would never actually like challenge you mm-hmm yeah, so there's a section toward the end of this chapter, how to communicate in high context cultures versus low context cultures. So I'm just going to share these bullet points in case this helps sum things up. How to communicate in high context cultures. So she says, include every detail of the business discussion. Ask for a response to confirm work tasks. Mm. Always CC a manager or ask them first before sending their report a work request. Include a personal non-work related note and always greet the other person before you ask for something. On the other hand, how to communicate in low context cultures. Be direct and to the point. Use bullet points and bold text to highlight the important details. Only say yes to a task if you plan on following through. Don't mix in non-work related notes with work requests and make sure it's readable on smartphone. So... (laughs) Yeah, super interesting. And I think how relevant this is to you is going to depend on what kind of work you do. Like if you have clients all over the world, this is very relevant. If you have an Etsy shop where you sell mostly to people in your state or nearby, like maybe less relevant and less something you need to like put a whole lot of thought into. And there's one thing that we haven't mentioned. I know we're getting towards the end of the book, which was around greetings and sign-offs which was a thing that I thought again because this came up in terms of like all those cultural differences people might do different things so it said about the use of hello hi and hey and like the different how like some people see some of them as more formal other ones don't and like how people sign off and I thought again that's like a really it's like it's an interesting one to think how even your site you're like how you start an email and how you end an email those two things can be have an impact on like how formal or informal people think you are like the tone whether people think you're angry Mm -hmm. or not and I think like you know most I had like for years I think my standard would have always been like hey and best wishes like that was my start and my end and thinking and I know some people think best wishes is too formal but I was just like this is what I'm going with people and now reading the book is really interesting to think like oh do I need to be changing it up depending on who I'm talking to and how are people reading that and so I think even something as small as that which we might take for granted and some people have like their sign off basically fixed on their email signature don't they um that Mm -hmm. can make a difference yeah and an interesting point she made here is yes the sign off in particular I feel like implies a certain level of formality like best versus like thanks Mm. you know thanks is a little bit more casual Another point she made was like, if all of a sudden you change it, like if all the time you always say thanks and then you send one email that says best, people can read into that. They can say, oh, did I do something to make this person mad? Like all of a sudden she's being a lot less casual with me. So it's just pretty amazing how much we read into like the smallest, tiniest things here. Mm. I actually have a very funny personal um, example of this. I, so my partner, Kate and I, we dated in college, then we broke up, then we got back together. After we broke up the first time we were like emailing about, I don't know what, and I signed a message best. (laughs) And this like, this was like a big deal. Like this was perceived (laughs) as very rude and like cold to do to someone like that, you know, we had had a relationship. And so I always think about that when I'm signing off things. I'm like, okay, how is this going to be? Like, I never thought of best as anything besides like, you know, just like your average sign off. Mm. But like everything can be read into. And, um, you know, just I think, again, like being thoughtful about how you do everything is important. So, yeah, that's a funny one for me. Well, I'm glad I brought off sign off up because you had a great example for us to finish up on. So is there anything, Lauren, as an end that you like, give me your takeaway, anything we should talk about how like applying it to small business owners? Yeah, I thought maybe we could each say like one or two things 
that we thought was especially relevant for small business. And I will go first. So for me, I love the conversation about emojis and how actually (laughs) this is like the digital way of communicating tone and emotion. And I think both of these things are super important in communications. I, you know, like it matters and it changes how things are received. So I just really love the permission to incorporate them into the way that we communicate to help our our messaging come through even clearer and just encouraging people to add any kind of context like emojis or exclamation points that will help their writing and their their messages be received in the right way. I think the other probably even bigger takeaway for me was in terms of my team, like thinking through how I communicate with them and understanding that they might be interpreting things that I don't like mean. So like if I don't respond right away, I I want to think through how that might be coming off instead of just like for me, I know it's because I'm super busy and I'll get to it, but I don't want that to ever be saying to someone that I don't value their work or care or it's not a priority to me. So I'm going to be really thinking through like my response times in particular and um, trying to cut them down or at least like if I know it's going to take me a minute to respond to something, just acknowledging and saying, okay, thank you so much. I'm going to get back to you as soon as I can on this. I'm working on a few other things right now, but I like received and thank you. So that's my big takeaway is just like not taking forever to respond in particular with my team, because I love and value all of their work. And I like never want it to come off any other way than that. And it might be actually. So that's, I'm definitely thinking about that. And me, I think I really thought this would be a book, like if you were about to start a team, this idea of being able to start off on the right foot and really being like, actually, mm-hmm. as you start to expand, think what what should actually be the channels of communication we use and what are the purposes? You know, I think we are overwhelmed with the options now. And actually this idea of having very clear use this one for this, we use this for that. And that was a really good example of the book that really went through like how they use Slack versus how they use email versus like when to have a conference call. And I think that type of process, I can just imagine as you're building a team to start off on the right foot would be like so powerful rather than trying to like change a culture that's already exists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if you have a culture that already exists, yeah. it can be <laughs> <laughs> of, course, of course obviously I was thinking, obviously that's coming from my point because I'm like I'm not in it I don't have a team so I wasn't I was thinking more of actually how this would be useful as I built a team um mm-hmm. but uh, yeah obviously you can take the lessons and <laughs> apply it with your team that you already have yeah and one th- one other thing I liked about the book is there's tons of examples but there's also tons of like call out sections with just some like rules of thumb that are helpful mm. So like you said, there's some great charts about like how to choose Slack versus call versus email versus video call. Like what is the right context for different forms of communication? So I think the book is really worth like if in particular, if you have a team or want a team, I would say it's most relevant to you of anyone. Um, And yeah, there's a lot of just easy rules of thumbs that I know I'm going to be like going back and referencing. So, but I do think if you are someone who has like, if you are like has a network of freelancers, if you work with a, you know some suppliers on a very close basis, like I think if there is people that you are regularly having to communicate with, I think in any way, shape, or form, it's valuable. I think it's probably if you just don't really feel like you talk to anyone, which is a bit how I feel. <laughs> <laughs> that I was a bit, like I was like there's loads of tips that I thought was really valuable but I just was like I hardly ever really feel like I communicate with anyone like I'm just like in this little silo but if I, I could really see if actually I had like a few freelancers that I actually was like in a network with and like some suppliers that I did stuff with regularly then I can see how even in those type of relationships the book would be really helpful mm-hmm. yeah absolutely this has been a surprisingly long conversation. So let's, <laughs> let's wrap her up. What book did we choose for next month? We have chosen Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. I Yay. am so, so excited for this book. Uh, I have read this book before. This is a book I think that gets recommended so often. If you've never heard of Elizabeth Gilbert, she wrote 
eat, love, pray. Um, that was eat, probably pray, love. Oh, eat, pray, love. <laughs> Can't you tell that I, do? I haven't read it? I have read it. No, actually, that's a lie. I've never read the book, but I read the anniversary book 10 years later about all the people that went on amazing journeys and like after reading the book. Um, but that Aww. was the book that sort of ma- made her um, become famous and eat, and mm-hmm. Big Magic came after that. And it's really about like tapping into our creative power. Yeah. And surprisingly, I've never finished this book. And I, I, it's not because I haven't liked it. It's just like I started it a few times and just, I don't know, dropped off. So um, I love Elizabeth Gilbert. I've like seen her speak and mm. I I know I'm going to love like digging into this book now that I like really have a good reason to go all in. I think it's a bit of a long book. Maybe that's part of why I didn't finish it. But yeah, I'm really excited about this. I think anyone who's making things that are new, whether it's products or even just your marketing, I think that we all will learn a lot from this. So excited to chat with you about that one. Okay, Sherelle, thank you for another great conversation on the book club. I am, yeah, I think this was a good one. I will be curious to hear what everyone thinks. If you felt like it was relevant to you, if you felt like you got some good takeaways, let us know. Um, but yeah, look forward to chatting with you, Sherelle and everyone else next month for big magic. So there you have it. If you read the book, I know Sherelle and I would both love to hear from you. DM us on Instagram and let us know what you thought of the book. We would love to chat. I'm at Lauren Tilden and Sherelle is at Sherelle Griffith. You can find details from this podcast on the show notes page at makinggoodpodcast.com slash 141. That's the numbers 141. Now, as you heard, we have announced our book for next month's edition of Making Good Book Club. And that book is Big Magic, How to Live a Creative Life and Let Go of Your Fear by Elizabeth Gilbert. Big Magic is one of the most highly recommended books by Making Good Podcast guests, and I cannot wait to dig into it in this next month's episode. If you enjoyed this episode, I would be grateful to have your support. Here are three ways you can give back to Making Good. First, I would be honored if you'd leave a rating and review in your favorite podcast player. And don't forget to subscribe or follow this podcast. Second, if you have a friend that you think would enjoy the podcast, you can send them the link. This episode is at makinggoodpodcast.com slash 141. And finally, I would love for you to take a screenshot of your podcast player while you're listening to the episode and tag me on social media at Lauren Tilden and Sherelle at Sherelle Griffith. Thank you for being here and for focusing on making a difference with your small business. Talk to you next time.